Good afternoon. We live in a rapidly uh, changing world. Communities that were once open to strangers are closing up. The Brexit, the Brexit vote in the UK, Trump as president in the US, many attempts in Europe to ban burqas and burkinis and so on. So there is growing fear. Fear of Muslims, fear of Arabs, fear of migrants. The latest votes in the UK and the US are not to be taken lightly and cannot be ignored. Through a democratic process, the people voted for decisions that many of us think are unthinkable. Very simply, people are disillusioned with the present state of affairs and are afraid. It should not surprise us that the average person values their safety and comfort and that of their families over the well-being of and safety of strangers. This is normal. This is human. It should not surprise us that the values that drive nations and politics are nationalistic and patriotic, caring primarily for the self-preservation and self-interest of the nation. We don't even have that in some of our countries where we have a lot of corruption. Not even the best interest of the nation is being considered. We should not be surprised by media outlets that are driven by specific agendas and manipulate their followers by playing on their fears and through the constant use of lies and half-truths. We should not be surprised if people are afraid. But what should be surprising and what should be alarming, however, is when the church is afraid. When the voice of the church resembles the voice of the politicians, of media, and the voice of the common, unconcerned individual. I find it alarming when the church is as divided as the politicians and the media around it. It is alarming when the voice of the church is not distinguishable from the voices around it. Can there be a distinct voice for the church? Could the gospel provide a different mandate and a different way of thinking, resulting in a different outcome? Is it possible that the rebellion against the present state of affairs can be a golden opportunity for the church to provide an alternate narrative and to lead in a different direction, even if from a point of perceived disadvantage? So what is the church really afraid of? The church is probably afraid of losing its place at the center. Communities that were founded on a Christian worldview are now being challenged by how to live and function in an increasingly pluralistic society. This is coupled with a shrinking church. Damian Thompson, an associate editor of The Spectator, commented that with the steady decline in British congregations, the year 2067, and I quote, is the year in which the Christians who have inherited the faith of their British ancestors will become statistically invisible. Parish churches everywhere will have been adapted for secular use, demolished or abandoned, end of quote. These reports must be very troubling to us. The church is afraid of yielding ground to other religions. Any concessions or rights given to other religious or non-religious groups uh, are viewed as Christianity losing space, losing territory to other religions. We are afraid that the religious freedom comes at the expense of the church. Western societies have become very individualistic. Faith is a private matter. Religious people are discouraged from making their faith a public affair. Rather, religious expression is confined to the private life of the individual. And now suddenly we see adherents to other religions exercising their faith more publicly, more holistically. And this causes fear. Fear of the others taking over. Fear of Sharia law. 
This fear leads us to develop conspiracy theories, thinking that all refugees, for example, who are coming to the West have an ulterior motive. They are coming to Islamize our countries. The church is afraid of Christianity becoming a minority religion. Post-Christendom, Western societies have been struggling with how to live in these pluralistic societies. Now there's the fear that Christianity will be further marginalized and pushed away from the center. And there's always the fear of what we don't know and the fear of whom we don't know. This leads us to an us and them mentality and to be threatened rather than enriched by our differences. And we are all afraid of extremism, radicalism, and terrorism. And this is a very legitimate fear. I would like to share a little bit of our story and history in Lebanon in the Lebanese Arab context with the Muslim majority. And I would like to share with you a bit of what God has been teaching us and how he has been transforming our hearts and attitudes. Let me outline first some of the challenges that we grew up with. First challenge, victim mentality and minoritization mentality. We grew up with fear. Our context is a majority Muslim context with a history of alienation and tension between our religious communities. The church becomes afraid. The ministry of the church is confined to serving our congregation, inward looking, not loving of outsiders or concerned for them that they hear the gospel. This is how I grew up. A friend of ours, a theologian and political analyst, analyzed the sociopolitical factors since the Ottoman Empire that forced Middle Eastern Christians to behave the way they do. He suggested that there are different theologies that guide our responses in such a context. He identified the theology of retreat or resignation, theology of fleeing or emigration. These two theologies dominate the church's responses in the Middle East. This is very true. Our churches find themselves in survival mode. Those who can leave, do leave to provide a better future for their families, away from the pressures of our context. Those who stay, stay in a very small and safe bubble, minding their own business, wanting to be left alone without being noticed by those outside the church. Second challenge, in our naive evangelism and mission strategies, we were trained to proclaim Christianity rather than proclaim Christ. We wanted others to become Christians. In a sectarian and religious context, religion is, much more, is, is about much more than just faith. Religion is very cultural. Each citizen is born into the religion of their parents. Religion becomes about belonging, about family, about community, about traditions. Religion is about identity. Religion may or may not have a faith component in it. For example, we have many fanatic people in the Middle East who strongly identify with a certain religion and are willing to fight for it, yet they do not even believe in God. They are atheists. In such a context, inviting a non-Christian to become a Christian is not necessarily an appealing invitation, especially when the perception of what Christianity is is very low. Christians are perceived to be those who fight with and kill other factions in our civil wars, in crusades, or in the war against the axis of evil. In terms of morality, Christianity is equated with Hollywood, thinking that the West is Christian. People think that everything they see on Western TV represents Christianity. So an invitation to a non-Christian to become a Christian is not an appealing invitation. It is simply an invitation for them to abandon their communities 
to defect to the other side, take on another religion, which they deem as morally questionable. And this only increases alienation between the religious communities. Third challenge. Using sociological concepts, we used to think the church as a bounded set rather than a centered set community. A bounded set community is formed by clearly defining the boundaries, while a centered set community is formed by defining the center. We love our boundaries. They make it easy for us to distinguish who's in and who's out. We set our own religious and community norms, and if, if people conform to our norms, then they're in. If they don't, then they're out. If outsiders learn to look like us, and talk like us, and dress like us, and think like us, and behave like us, then they are ready to move from the outside to the inside. Discipleship in this model becomes membership 101, teaching new converts how to follow and adhere to our norms. Fourth challenge. Our understanding of the gospel was very narrow and very limited. We understood the gospel to be verbal proclamation only. The church should be concerned with spiritual matters only. Any kind of physical or humanitarian concern is the responsibility of humanitarian organizations, but not the church. The literal meaning of gospel is good news, yet we use the gospel merely to judge people rather than to help them. Another challenge that's not just limited to our region, but it's probably more of a global problem, is we were used to reading the Bible in a way that leaves us comfortable. For example, the Bible talks about head covering for women in one passage for a specific occasion. We built a whole doctrine and practice based on that, and it became our standard for holiness. This is how we measured how holy people are. On the other hand, the Bible mentions the poor and poverty 446 times, yet this was not our standard for holiness. The Bible talks about justice 1,576 times, but this was not our standard for holiness. The Bible addresses issues of money and wealth 1,453 times. Yet what we do with our money did not become the standard for holiness. Reading and applying the Bible selectively has been a big obstacle for us. Now I want to focus the rest of my talk on the lessons that we are learning as God has been transforming our hearts, minds, and attitudes despite the challenges that I mentioned. God has caused a major transformation in our churches. And it's interesting that the biggest change did not come through a process where our churches revisited their theology, and that led to a change in praxis. Quite the opposite. In response to the humanitarian crisis, the churches found themselves caring for the refugees, which was very unnatural for them. God caused transformation at the heart level, where the natural response to people in crisis changed. Our churches started embracing the others, caring for the strangers, coming alongside them and walking with them while providing physical and spiritual nourishment. The change in practice came first, and now our churches are trying to rethink their theology based on their new practice. They are learning to read the Bible with a different lens. Some of the lessons that we've been learning. We are discovering a much deeper and profound meaning of the gospel, a gospel that includes both word and deed. We are learning what integral mission is. Integral mission uh, is a term was, that was coined in Latin America. Rene Padilla defines it this way. Integral mission is the means designed by God to carry out within history his purpose of love and justice, 
revealed in Jesus Christ through the church and in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we are gaining a new understanding of mission which embraces both verbal proclamation and social responsibility. We are learning how to love the others, even if they don't love us back. We are learning how to respect them, even if they don't respect us back. Not because they deserve it or, or that they've earned it, but because this is what the children of God ought to do. We are learning that God is actively pursuing people from all different faiths and backgrounds and people groups. Our job is not to stand in the way, but to be able to recognize where God is at work and join him and help point people to Jesus. We are learning that God continues to do what he does best, redemption. He takes a very bad situation and he redeems it so that good things come out of it. Life comes out of it. In the middle of all the evil and hostilities that we have in our region and the threat to the preservation of Christian minorities, God has given life to our churches and new opportunities for proclaiming the gospel to unreached people are emerging every day. The gospel is penetrating within new people groups in unprecedented ways. We are learning to move from the prevalent theologies of resignation and emigration to a theology of prophetic engagement. We are learning that the church has a major role to play as an agent of hope and reconciliation. The church needs to have a prophetic voice, bringing God's words to the people in need. To quote a friend of mine, that's what he says, the opposite of hope is lack of imagination. The power to imagine that things can change, that things can be better, that we can make a difference, imagining that God wants a different reality for us. The church cannot operate out of fear. Fear paralyzes. Fear is anti-gospel. We are learning to be bold, to be willing to step out where it's uncomfortable and sometimes dangerous, to be these agents of hope and peace and reconciliation. We are learning to preach Christ, not Christianity. We are learning to accept new forms of followers of Christ who may not look like us. We are learning to accept new expressions of church that do not resemble our established churches. We are learning how to move from bounded set to centered set thinking. Instead of having boundaries that are defined by our own cultural and religious norms, many church communities are learning to define themselves purely by putting Jesus at the center. The Bible makes it clear that it is not our role to decide who's in and who's out. Our job is to draw people to the center, to Jesus. It does not matter how close or far from the center people are, as much as it matters in which direction they are moving. Our role is to help point them in the right direction and draw them in. This has significant implications on how we do discipleship. Discipleship is no longer concerned only in moving people from the outside to the inside. The journey of moving towards the center is a lifelong journey. Following Jesus is a lifelong journey. So discipleship should be a lifelong mandate. We are learning to rethink the categories of majority and minority. Christians are a minority in numbers in our region. Muslims are a majority, that's for sure. But the present conflict is not Muslims against Christians. It's extremism and radicalism against everyone else. In this case, the extremists and radicals are the minority, while Christians with moderate Muslims constitute the majority. And Christians are at the very center of this majority in terms of impact and opportunity. 
we are learning to work with others within this majority, working with the moderates and giving them stronger voice and a more robust platform against the extremists. We are learning a lot through engaging in interfaith dialogue, especially at our seminary, the Arab Baptist Theological Seminary. We're doing that a lot. A word about dialogue here. Some people mistake dialogue for compromise. Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, if we compromise, then they will not respect us. They will not want to listen to us. The premise of dialogue is that all parties stand firm in what they believe in, but engage in respectful conversation. Dialogue is about creating understanding, learning about Islam and Muslims from Muslims themselves, and not from books written about them by Christians and wanting Muslims to learn about us, about followers of Christ, and about Christ from us, and not from what their perception of Christianity is or from what their books might teach them. The regular feedback that we've been getting about this type of dialogue is, well, this is great, and we have this dialogue at the religious leadership level, but how can we push this to the grassroots level? So this is precisely what we're starting to do in our peace-building initiatives. We're initiating peace-building activities that target a variety of audiences, young people, grassroots of faith communities, religious leaders, political and other influential community leaders, and thoughtful and active church leaders. And the aim of these initiatives is to create spaces where wounds can heal and past hurt and fear can be dealt with, to develop mechanisms to identify, expose, and monitor prejudiced behavior, and develop tools to raise awareness and educate the public, to develop activities and learning resources with the purpose of fostering a unified identity that respects and is inclusive of the religious and cultural mosaic in the Levantine societies. And we want to do all of this by mobilizing the churches with us and while focusing on a theology of the incarnation and theology of the cross. We want our peace-building initiatives to be distinctive in their contributions. We are in the process of unpacking these as we launch into our initiatives. We have a few initiatives that we're launching, a program called FEAST, which uh, is a program based here in the UK, which brings in youth uh, from different faith backgrounds and to a weekly meal where they learn how to have respectful conversation with one another. A church mosque network targeting religious leaders. The purpose of this network is to establish grassroots platform located within a national network of churches and mosques, mosques whose leaders are willing to brand their houses of worship as hubs and symbols of loving understanding and partnership between people of various faiths. Strategic roundtables targeting church leaders and organizational leaders. We're partnering with a think tank. The think tank, they do their studies and research so that they can influence policymakers. And we're taking that research and extending, extending it so that it can influence the churches from a kingdom perspective. So we are embarking on several peacemaking initiatives. Back to some more lessons learned. We are learning to challenge our missiology, moving from an apathetic attitude to, or a polemic approach to a very charismatic approach. Kerygma is a Greek word for proclamation, and by charismatic, this is what we mean, this is how we unpack it. Charismatic means respectful of Muslims, loving of others, friendly to people who are different, Christ-centered, prophetic and intellectually honest, passionate about God's mission in the world, intentional about witness for the gospel, and always ready to share the hope. 
we're learning how to read the Bible through a different lens, realizing that the Bible is a machinery document. For example, one of my favorite passages come fr comes from John, John 10. I came that they may have life and that, that they have it more abundantly. We had always understood that the abundant life was inside the safety of the fold. Abundant life can be found in the comfort and safety of our own communities. But this is not what Jesus is saying. In the previous verse, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. We come into the, face of the, fold, into the safety of the fold to be saved and cared for. Then we go out into the danger zone, following Jesus the shepherd. That's where the pasture is. That's where we get nourished. That's where we discover abundant life. Abundant life is not in the safety of the fold. Abundant life is when we are out there engaged in the mission of God. We're learning this lesson. These are some lessons that we are learning, but we are not done learning yet. There are many challenges ahead of us. I will mention just one. It's the challenge of differentiating between gospel and religion. What's happening in our region is very paradoxical. As the presence of Christianity is diminishing, the gospel is quickly gaining ground. People are coming to faith in unprecedented numbers from new people groups. And in the midst of this, it's interesting to observe that many of our churches that are engaged in serving refugees from different backgrounds are increasing their use of religious symbolism. From religious wear for pastors to making sure that the church buildings look like traditional churches with the cross at the top to various other symbols. Churches that were in survival mode for a long time, wanting to keep a low profile, are now changing their image to be publicly religious. It's as if we're positioning our churches to represent a legitimate alternate religion. Those that are disillusioned with their previous religion, they can drop that and pick up a better religion, a better option. A friend of mine did some research among the new expressions of churches that are emerging in Lebanon out of non-Christian background. He was able to classify these church groups into three different categories. The first one he calls the adopters. Those are people that have rejected the religion of their faith in terms of their cultural elements and adopted the culture of Christianity. These are people that take on a new Christian identity and become part of our established churches and are likely to even change their names. The second group he calls the negotiators. These are people who have rejected the religion of birth with all its cultural elements, but chose not to adopt a Christian religion or a Christian culture as a replacement. They are trying to negotiate and navigate their way through a new identity that neither resembles their old one nor a Christian one. It feels as though they are in liminal space waiting to find out what will emerge. This is very complex in a confessional and sectarian country like Lebanon. Who will marry their children and who will bury their dead? These are important questions that they need to deal with. The third group is the reframers. It's the people that have chosen to remain within the religion of birth and their culture while trying to give their religious and cultural expressions a new meaning. This group is what might be referred to as insiders. My interest is mostly in the middle group, the negotiators as these new believers abandon their old religion and culture and are trying to discover what it means for them now that they are followers of Jesus, I wonder what it would look like if our church communities can also abandon our religious and cultural norms and come alongside them in discovering a new kingdom culture. 
for both of our communities. I wonder what that would look like and if it might be a way forward in our region, abandoning religion altogether for the sake of the gospel. Again, this will never be easy in a highly religious and sectarian society, but I wonder. Friends, we live at a very critical time, a very critical season. Whether we live in the Middle East or in the West, the realities around us are changing very quickly. And as much as it appears that we are losing the cultural wars, we cannot deny what God is doing around us. God is using the cultural challenges to shake our churches. God is actively working among people groups that we never thought would come to faith in these large numbers. This gospel penetration is reaching a tipping point. There is no stopping this gospel momentum. The question that remains, will we be ready as Christ's church to carry on the mission of God in these crucial times, or do we let this opportunity pass us by? I pray for a new paradox, that as the church is further pushed to the margin, that our impact would be anything but marginal.